Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. But how does his iconic prayer serve as a model in our own prayer life? Find out today as Pastor Scott continues our series on the Lord's Prayer. The scripture reading is from Luke 4, verses 16 to 30. Please turn to Luke chapter 4 in your Bibles, or follow along in the sermon notes handout or the words on the screen. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to pro- proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are getting back on the horse, as uh, the saying goes today. We are back into our series on what is most often referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but what we are calling for, hopefully by now, for obvious reasons, the prayer that embraces the world. This is truly a prayer that has, in its context, in its sights, the entire globe. I want to do a little bit, just before we get into the, the, the line today, I want to do a little bit of a review uh, today, because there are some interesting facets about this prayer and how it's situated in Scripture that, um, that, that I want to just draw to your attention just really quickly. First off, um, you'll notice that it's in two places, right? We have two versions of this prayer, one in Matthew, the one that we're sort of using as our main text. And, uh, and one in Luke. And it's interesting, in both of these places, they arise in different contexts. In Matthew, you have this, uh, it, it kind of arises or it emerges as part of what we refer to as uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this great long section of, fairly long section, Matthew 5 to 7, chapters 5 to 7, 
this great sermon, this collection of Jesus' sayings, and, and in the midst of that, you've got the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Luke, on the other hand, the prayer emerges from this day-to-day interaction that the disciples of Jesus had with, with him. It, it arose out of a question. Right? His disciples were observing what was happening elsewhere, in particular with John the Baptist and his followers, and they understood, they knew that John had taught his disciples to pray, and so Jesus' disciples said, Jesus, why don't you teach us how to pray too? So I, I find this, this uh, encouraging, the fact that it arises in two different contexts, right? On the one hand, because this is an expression of our faith as a whole. On the one hand, we've got this expression in Matthew that's this, this great sort of uh, systematic uh, uh, declaration or presentation of Jesus' teachings, right? It helps us to organize our thoughts around some of these things. Uh, whereas Luke, Luke reminds us, the situation in Luke reminds us that, that our relationship with God, that what Jesus is inviting us to is indeed a relationship, that Jesus didn't uh, kind of gather his disciples, put them down in chairs in a classroom, and then on a whiteboard or on a chalkboard, whatever you're familiar with, start to outline all his, his insight and his information. But rather, he walked with them, and he demonstrated. And so the disciples not only saw G- uh, John the Baptist teaching them to pray, but they saw Jesus praying regularly. And so they asked him, how, do you, how can we pray? So we've got this situation as a bit of a background. In addition, I, I also want to note that Matthew and Luke introduce the prayers in a different way, using different language. Some of you like this. I'll try to rush through this fairly quickly because this is a little bit of a, of a, a jump into grammar. So I apologize right off the bat, but, but I wanted to share this with you because I find this helpful in terms of applying the, the Lord's Prayer in my own life. Uh, Matthew begins the prayer by, with Jesus saying, when you pray, pray like this. Right? Pray like this. What Matthew is, is emphasizing is the like this. When you pray, pray like this. He adds an adverb. So the action, the action of praying, he's going to say, is like this. Okay, I'm going to talk about that a little, in a little bit more detail in a second. Luke, on the other hand, he, he starts off the prayer by writing, when you pray, say. Right? So his emphasis is on the language, the words. Barton raised this a couple weeks ago when he introduced, introduced the, the series to us. Right? Remember that? He talked about how the words are important, but in addition to the words, also, the, the way that it's constructed, the organization of the words, right? He pointed out, as it's, you know, those of us who are familiar with the prayer know this, the first section, the first few lines are addressing God himself. And that provides the context for then us to be able to address our own needs. And so we were reminded, and we take this to say, here's what we can pray for. Here's some language that we can use. Here are some clues. Here are some texts, some words that we can use. But also, here's how we can arrange it. Let's set in context first when we go about our prayer life, remembering first who it is, in fact, we are addressing. This is God, our Father. 
right? Our Father, this, this intimate that re- relationship we have because of the work of Jesus. But in that same line, it says, our Father, oh, but don't forget, he's the one in the heavens. He's Almighty God. So we've got this Almighty Father that we're addressing, and it's to him that we're addressing. We're asking him that it's his name that is glorified, that it's his kingdom that comes. It is his will that is done, right? And so that sets the context for us then to say, God, in light of that, would you please meet my material needs? Would you please help me to forgive? Would you please protect me from evil? But I want to add one other thing that I think Matthew also, also does in, in the way that he introduces. Right? Remember, Matthew's version is when you pray, pray like this. I want to start off, or, or the, the addition that I want to add starts off with something that's not noticeable in the English, but I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, almost every verb in this prayer is in the imperative mood. So again, I apologized earlier, right? I, I don't want to keep apologizing for, for this, but, but it's helpful, and hopefully by the end you'll see this. What is the imperative mood, right? So if you're writing the imperative mood, mean, or, or if you're writing the imperative, you end your sentence with what? An exclamation mark, right? That's the imperative mood. Now, to, to see what John or, or to what Matthew, what I think is doing, or what he noticed when Jesus was teaching them how to pray, let's think about how we would use the imperative mood uh, in a couple different ways. First of all, you would you would use it when you're directing something in in a, an authoritative sense, right? You're saying stop, exclamation mark, or don't hit your sister, exclamation mark. Right? You're expressing, you're exerting some authority, you're insisting people listen to you for whatever reason. It's a command that you're given. The other way that we use this is in more of a, uh, more of expressing kind of your passion about something. Right? So you've got something like, oh, you've got to try the shawarma from the place just at the end of the block. Right? Something that you're excited about. Or, oh no, don't see that movie. Right? Exclamation mark. These are expressions of passion that we're, we're suggesting to, that people listen to honor this. Well, I, I think we can safely rule out the first possibility since then it would appear as if Jesus was instructing us to pray to God by commanding him to do something. Now, unfortunately, sometimes I think we actually do slip into this frame of mind and treat God as if he was some kind of genie in the lamp that is beholden to us. This is not what, is, what Jesus is teaching, nor is it what I think Matthew or Luke understood Jesus to be teaching either. And I think that because, again, the words Jesus used, right? Again, in the first section, this is God's name. His name is the one that is to be glorified, that is to be made holy. It is his kingdom it is his will. This is, the, this is the being in whom we are addressing with this. So we, we can't then come alongside and, and, and uh, expect that we're supposed to command him. The other, the other piece, the other clue that it's not a command is that this use of the imperative in this first section, which again provides context for the entire prayer, is written in the third person. That is, these imperatives are indirect. 
right? Let's gather together, right? So it's not, you're not talking to somebody or let's go see this movie or let's go eat at this restaurant. It's this idea of, of these others involved in this, right? These other conditions, these other individuals. That's why sometimes you see the Lord's Prayer in English written, let your kingdom come or let it be the case that your name is made holy, it's because it's, you're not directing it, it's not, it's not a command or it's not imperative directly to, to God, it's indirectly saying, God, please make it the case, orchestrate everything that, that needs to happen so that your kingdom come, will come. I'll say a little bit more about that whole orchestration thing at the end. So, I'm convinced that when Matthew heard the teaching of Jesus regarding prayer, he also saw something that he wanted to pass on to us. He saw Jesus engage with prayer, not just recite some words. He saw Jesus express passion about these things. This is that other version of the imperative, right? This passion. So, so it could have been something like maybe what Matthew and, and Luke saw, especially Matthew, is, is that in, uh, that caused him to record these imperatives is, is if Jesus was saying something like, our Father, the one who is in the heavens, please, please let your name be glorified. Please let your kingdom come. Please let your will be done. Do you see sort of the passion? Uh, Jesus inviting us not to just say the words, not to just pray the words, but to engage it, to let it be an expression of your heart. I think this is what Matthew saw in Jesus. I don't think Jesus just sort of said, okay, you want to learn how to pray? All right. Uh, our Father is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like him. I don't think he just kind of listed these things off. I think he took a moment and he said, do you really want to know how to pray? Part of this is for you to engage this. This has got to come from the heart. And that's why he also instructed us giving the words and giving the, the content for us and the organization for us so that we would understand that each of these things has eternal consequence, that it matters that God's name is glorified. And then he, he went about his life demonstrating this, that it matters that God's kingdom comes. And then he went, went about trying to uh, reveal that, trying to declare that, trying to encourage that, that it matters that God's will be done, that same will that is done in heaven is also done in earth. And then he went about living this out in his own life through his own words, through his own actions. This is more. So, the matters raised by Jesus in this teaching prayer have eternal consequences. He invites us to address these eternal matters through the activity of prayer and confirms that the activity of prayer is also of eternal consequences. Okay, enough of a review. Let's dig into your kingdom come. But please, as we go on, don't forget this. Don't forget that, that uh, the prayer does not simply suggest that it's simply a matter of God doing something alone. But this prayer is a desire that the conditions become such that God king, God's kingdom comes. With Jesus as our example, he prayed and acted with the ideas of this teaching prayer in mind. And also don't forget that this prayer is meant to be a passionate expression to God. Please, God, 
Please, God, we see war and we see distress and we see injustice and we see a lack of peace and we see, we see evil that seems to uh, 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 overpower good time and time again. Please, God, we see all this. Let it be done. Let it come to pass that your kingdom come. I'm going I'm to walk us through this by answering two questions. First, what is God's kingdom? And then I want to answer the question and consider for a brief time, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? So let's let's look at the first question. What is God's kingdom? All right, so to do this, I'm going to look at each of the words kind of individually, just quickly. Your kingdom come. First word, quite clear, I think, The indication is that this is God's doing. This is God's possession. Whatever we're praying for at the base of it all, and the pronoun is there in the Greek as well, it's clear. This is your kingdom, God, that we're addressing. This is not related to some geopolitical national entity. This is your kingdom that is to come. And God's kingdom alone. This is his possession. Just for a moment, I want to draw your attention to... to see this, and I want to take us way back in the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 2. I want to just remind you of this vision that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at this time, had, uh, and then he was inviting all the wise men in, in the land around him to, to kind of, first they, he had to, or they had to tell him what he dreamt, and then they, they had to explain this to him. Well, as it turns out, God revealed this to Daniel, who then came to King Nebuchadnezzar and revealed it to him. Some of you will remember this in in Daniel chapter 2, right? What does he see? In the vision given to Nebuchadnezzar, interpreted by Daniel, recorded for us in Daniel chapter 2, the nature of the ownership and the construction of our father's kingdom is described. Against the various nations of the earth, powerful, conquering nations, arises another. Remember the dream? What is the dream? Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming. He sees this great statue. And the statue is constructed of various kinds of metal, all the way down. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, all the way down to clay. These, the great things is representative of all, of all these nations, these conquering, powerful nations. But then comes another In the vision, a statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, again, the representation of earthly power, prestige, and dominion, could not withstand the force of a stone. A stone which struck the statue and destroyed it. uh, Such that, as the text said, it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. This grand idol, this grand statue made with all these precious metals, these strong metals, is literally pulverized by this stone in the vision. Now, I want you to notice that Daniel explains that this stone, listen to this, was cut out not by human hands. Daniel's then summary to Nebuchadnezzar uh, reads as follows in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. The God of heaven... This is his, is at the end, explanation. This is what it means. The God of heaven, does that sound familiar? God of heaven, our Father who is in the heavens, okay? 
will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to a uh, another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's the kingdom. That's how it comes about by the working and the construction and the efforts of God. This is God's kingdom. So, what do we mean, what do we mean when we use the term kingdom? Your kingdom. Well, it's a very common word. Those of you who are familiar with Scripture and, and have read uh, the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, or, or both, hopefully, very common, regular word in, in Scripture. And we toss it around sometimes as if, oh yeah, that's kingdom. Oh yeah, we know what the kingdom is until we stop for a minute and think, well, how many of us have actually lived in a kingdom? How many of us know what it's like to have a kingdom, a king, who rules absolutely. We get offended, I think, in our system when somebody imposes something on us. Do we understand what God means when he says, this is my kingdom and that it's coming? Well, as I said, it's a massive topic in Scripture. So uh, all I can offer you today is a glimpse and a summary of the key characteristics of what I think is meant by God's kingdom or rule. For the glimpse, let's go to that passage that Ian read for us earlier, Luke chapter 4. Right, so Ian read this, but let me summarize it again. Jesus attends a synagogue in Nazareth, and the text said, as was his custom. Nothing strange at this point. He's always there. Um, uh, And when the time came in the service for someone to read the scriptures, Jesus was presented with a scroll and asked to read. He chose a passage from the book of Isaiah. Now, Let me just pause for a minute. The information available in the book of Isaiah is at the heart of the scriptural notion of the kingdom of God. I I won't touch on on it all today or or this section today, but I encourage you, if you're not familiar with Isaiah, I recommend that you become very familiar with chapters 52, 53, 54, and 55 as a way to start in coming to terms with the nature of this biblical kingdom. But in this case, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus chooses to read from another critical section of Isaiah, chapter 61. He reads this section, sets the scroll down, and then shockingly applies this kingdom passage to himself. He says, this scripture is fulfilled today in your midst. He claims that God's rule, God's kingdom, is now being fulfilled in their midst. By doing this, Jesus is claiming to be the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. That he is the one anointed to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind. That he is the one who can authentically proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These things are all directly related to the kingdom of God that, that, um, uh, that is in the entire context that provides the, the very basis, the very foundation for all the other teachings. It provides the basis, as you'll see in a moment, for the gospel itself to come out of this teaching of the, of the kingdom. Jesus is thus proclaiming, claiming that he is the one who will bring the kingdom of God to earth. He is claiming then to be the stone 
from Daniel chapter 2. Notice what happens next. All those who heard were amazed and spoke well of him at first. This introduces us to the dual nature of the kingdom. On the one hand, when we talk about the kingdom of God, it affirms everything that we hold dear. Most people hold dear, whether you claim to be a follower of Christ or not. Everything for which we long, peace, justice, goodness, flourishing, all of these grand themes are incorporated into the kingdom. This is what we're promised. And not because it's anything in addition to, but it's because it's God at the heart of this. He is justice. He is goodness. He is peace. These are the kinds of promises that make God's kingdom popular. But, if you notice the text, interestingly, Jesus doesn't leverage this goodwill, right? This good feeling. He doesn't leverage this or nurture this. Instead, he provokes those who are feeling good about the rule of God. In this case, Jesus implies that the kingdom is more extensive than political Israel. And in fact, goes beyond Israel. He was provoking his listeners because they assumed that because they were Israelites genetically, they were destined to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Instead, Jesus reminds them that when it comes to the blessings associated with God's kingdom, political Israel was not a guarantee. I'll leave you to look up the details in that text uh, to kind of discover those stories that Jesus was referring to. But basically, Jesus was pointing out various situations in the past when God blessed people outside of Israel. Well, this did not sit well with his audience. This changed their attitude towards Jesus. This is the other side of the dual nature of the kingdom of God. Yes, there are beautiful promises associated with the rule of God. All those things are present because God is present. But as Jesus implied, there are conditions. Putting limits on God's blessing did not sit well with that crowd. In fact, as you know, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. How's that for going from one extreme to another? They went from speaking well of him enjoying him, celebrating the kingdom, to wanting to kill him. This is part of the kingdom of God. For us, the other side, or the conditional side of God's rule, emerges not in the same way, not from Jesus pointing out differences in in how God blessed other countries, not Israel. There are some occasions when that happens. But emerges in this text by looking at what Jesus doesn't read from Isaiah 61. Interestingly, if you look back, some of you may know this. Jesus reads almost verbatim from Isaiah chapter 61. But he stops reading right before the phrase, And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, was Jesus sort of jettisoning that, saying, nah, you don't need to worry about that? Not at all. What I think he was saying, what I think he was doing is saying, for now, God is pressing pause on the day of vengeance. But make no mistake, it's coming. Part of the rule of God revealed in the establishing of his kingdom as declared by Jesus 
is the possibility of punishment. Hopefully that changes, helps you understand this, the fullness of the kingdom of God, that all of us should be aware of this. I'll say more about this in a second. So let me offer a summary of this, this characteristic, these characteristics of the kingdom of God or, or the rule of God. The characteristics are these. First of all, the redemption uh, and the, the world will be reclaimed and redeemed, right? This is all part of that kingdom. Remember the, the vision of Daniel chapter 2? I didn't read, but the, the, the vision is that the stone comes, destroys the kingdom, and then spreads the over across the entire world. The redemption, the reclamation of the world. Secondly, the complete and final expulsion of sin and evil. Redemption, the reclamation of the world, all those things that we hold dear, peace, justice, goodness is, will come because that's who God is. That everything will flourish because that is God's plan, that is God's will, that is who God is. He's created something to flourish and it will again flourish. But in the process of this, he needs to expel, he needs to um, get rid of sin and evil. We see this in Revelation chapter 21. I won't take time to, to read that, but, but, but look at that. But essentially, it's that vision John has where he sees the city coming down, this new Jerusalem coming down to earth. That is God's kingdom coming down, taking uh, its proper place on earth. And in that place, John says, only the clean and the righteous will be permitted. This should cause us pause, all of us. Only the clean and the righteous will be permitted in God's kingdom. That's all part of him getting rid of sin and evil. But it should cause us pause to remember, those of us who know, those of us who don't, here it is, this is where the gospel fits in. This is what Jesus came to do. He says, I, I, I know, I recognize that none of you can do this on your own. Israel failed in, in, in their attempt. And so now I'm taking on Israel and I'm going to fulfill this before God so that you have the potential. Each one, each individual has the potential to, to get right with God, to be in that right relationship with God. Have God forgive us our sins, to get rid of that evil in their lives and then for us to live that way more and more as we see that day approaching, that is the gospel. God's kingdom is coming. We're praying that God, that, that we want God's kingdom to come. But in the process, we're remembering that by God's grace, we can be participate in the kingdom. And by God's grace alone, by the work of Christ alone, can we be participants in the kingdom. So as we pray this prayer, your kingdom come. Let it be a reminder of God's wonderful grace and his gospel so that almost in the same breath we're saying, thank you, God. Thank you for the work on my behalf so that I have the, I have the possibility by God's grace, by your grace, to participate in the kingdom. So the prayer is your kingdom come. I'll say just a few things about this. Again, in reference to that grand vision recorded for us in the middle of Revelation 21, where God reveals to John the new capital of God's kingdom, worldwide kingdom at the end of time, John saw this holy city coming down out of heaven from God. In his book, The Lord and His Prayer, 
Tom Wright, a, a teacher of mine actually from the University of St. Andrews, explains that heaven and earth are the two interlocking arenas of God's good world. Heaven is God's space presently where God's writ runs. In other words, God's will is done. And God's future purposes are waiting in the wings. Presently, earth is our world, our space. So when John's prophetic vision is finally realized, God's space and ours are finally completely married, are integrated at last. When the kingdom comes, this kingdom that comes is not of this world's making. Jesus, this is what he tells Pilate. He says, my kingdom, this kingdom that we're praying, is not from this world. Echoing all of these prophetic visions, both past and future. But it's coming. This kingdom that comes, comes to earth for our benefit. So what does it mean to pray, your kingdom come? I'm going to just conclude here, but as I conclude, I'm going to invite the music team to come to the stage, and they'll come and get ready to lead us in our, in our final song. So what does it mean to pray, your kingdom come? Well, hopefully some of these things will be already clear to you. First of all, it means that we are expressing our hope and our desire and our longing. And that's fairly straightforward for most of us, right? I mean, we look at the world around us. We maybe look at our situation. Maybe we, we consider our relatives and maybe some of our friends or others that are in, in some of the hot spots around the world. And we go, yes, it's easy to pray something like this. And so we do, we, we engage this, but we do pray longingly and we do pray with passion. God, bring your kingdom because we know that's the hope. That's our hope. Not in government policy, but in your kingdom coming. And in so doing, we recognize the grace afforded to us through Christ. An acknowledgement that we, that I, that you are in the kingdom on account of Christ's rescue. That's the language of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 says, God who rescued us from the kingdom of, kingdom of darkness and placed us in the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the rescue. And so we express this, your kingdom come with hope and desire and longing. And secondly and finally, it becomes a desire for God to make us his kingdom bearers. Our ambassadors of the kingdom. So the prayer is actually not just the words, but the prayer is actually as much as the words that we, that we pray, your kingdom come, but the way we live our life as a declaration that in fact this is true. We don't, we don't need, just need to look to the future. We, we do for sure for the fulfillment of it, but we can look to now to each other and say the kingdom of God can, can begin in your life where the sin can be expulsion, can be uh, got rid of from your life and my life, little by little, as we submit and surrender to this Christ, this King of Kings, whose kingdom is coming. This is reflected in the language of, of the prayer. God, let it be the case that your kingdom comes. Bring everything to bear, including my life, 
to increase your rule. Here, let me show you one other quote from Tom Wright's book. We can only pray this prayer for the church if we are prepared to mean, make us kingdom bearers. Make us a community of healed healers. Make us a retuned orchestra to play the kingdom music until the world takes up the song. Make, make us, in turn, servants of the Lord, the few with the message for the many. Sometimes we get impatient with God, though, right? It's easy to. We see what's going around. We say, God, this, this can't be. We've got to do something. And so instead of dealing with stuff internally, where the kingdom is at work right now, where the, the results of the kingdom, the spirit, the kingdom spirit is at work right now, we go external. And we think that's got to change or that's got to change. Instead, what God is inviting us to is saying, let your lives be a declaration that the kingdom is coming. Let our lives deal with the sin in our lives. Don't give in to the lust or, or, or uh, challenge yourself to, uh, to do that. Work with others. Find help uh, to avoid gossip, to avoid bitterness, to avoid unforgiveness. Pull our families together. To see, we're not going to allow our families, our marriages to break up. We're going to get them healthy. We're going to get them strong as a way to declare that God's peace is at work first in our lives, in our community, in the church of Christ, so that the world knows, ah, oh, yeah, there is something going on. There is something powerful. There is something different. That's how we pray our kingdom come. Your kingdom come. After the service here, we're going to just um, conclude here in just a moment. We're going to have some prayer partners available for you. If um, you want to need prayer for anything, if you want to pray in response to this and say, yeah, God, my, my life is not a reflection of what your kingdom is. It need, I, need, I need strength. I need help in this. Come forward and, and, and get prayer. We have people who would love to pray for you. So now let me uh, just offer one last prayer here. Let's pray. Father, we do want to pray. We want to be people who can passionately pray, your kingdom come. But we also, Father, recognize there we, we also want to be, Father, help it to be the case that we want it to be as a church, as families in the church as individuals in the church that our lives are a reflection of this kingdom because this is how it begins this is how it grows this is how it spreads until one day it'll be finalized in a in a geographical place that's actually going to be the entire world but help us father help us to be passionate not just in our prayer but in our life as an expression of the kingdom that we long to come. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.